0: We're in the second week of a family series. I want to begin by reading Psalm 127. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, and like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy, blessed, is the man whose quiver is full of them, and they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Psalm 127 was written by King Solomon in the twilight of his years, this aged, seasoned warrior king, this man who had great achievements and had built a mighty kingdom now begins to reflect on life and he begins to look at the possibility of generations and he starts to look at family and homes and children and he writes this beautiful psalm talking about the man who is blessed and a prosperous family and he makes one critical observation and this is our takeaway this morning. He says, unless the Lord builds the house. And really, you could put this on anything. He talks about the city gates. Unless God is at the center of all that we do, it's all vanity. It has no meaning and purpose. Jesus, greater than Solomon, came on and said, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. And so there's meaning in, in family and marriage, there can be meaninglessness. There can be vanity. And Solomon talks about this. Our labor is in vain. Now, when Solomon talks, not E.F. Hutton, we should listen. He's the wisest man who's ever lived. He writes Psalms. He writes the book of Proverbs. This is a man who's gushing with wisdom. People came from around the world to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And he knows something about building. He built the first temple in Israel. Now David did much of the planning. David gathered most of the materials. But God said David's hands were so, too bloody. And so Solomon builds this first temple. And, and you need to read Alfred Erdensheim's if you're interested in something like this. The temple. It is, it is astounding what they accomplished in those days cutting limestone in quarries, taking it to Jerusalem, uh, the magnificence of the temple. You read about it in 1 Kings. It was one of the wonders of the world. So Solomon knew a lot about building. He also knew a lot about vanity. Three times in two verses, he talks about vanity. When he was in his early 20s, he becomes king in Israel. And the Lord appears to him and he says, Solomon... You know, I will grant you whatever you desire, whatever prayer. You want death of your enemies, long life. Uh, whatever you want, Solomon, I will grant your request. And he said, Lord, I don't want length of days or death of my enemies. I don't want great riches. I want wisdom that I might lead your people Israel. And God said, because you didn't ask for all those things, I'll give them to you anyway. And he gives Solomon more wisdom than any man has ever had. Let's Listen to this. It's astounding. It says, And God gave Solomon wisdom, an exceedingly great understanding, and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled all the wisdom of the men of the east and their name there. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 2,005. Now, his wisdom surpassed just theology. He spoke of trees, of the cedars of Lebanon, to the hyssop springs out of the wall. He spoke of animals, of birds, of creeping things, of fish. He spoke of nations and of kings and of war. And they came from all over the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But then something happened. Solomon transgressed all that wisdom. For years and years, he goes on a quest to find the meaning of life. And the fruit of that is he writes a book called Ecclesiastes, where he draws one grand conclusion that all is vanity, and it's like chasing the wind. All of his pleasure, all of his sexual exploits, all his money-making, all of his building, everything Solomon put his effort into, he said it was all vanity and chasing the wind. And he looks at life under the sun, and it's meaningless. And a lot of people feel that way today. People are waking up today, they feel no purpose, they feel anxiety, there's no reason to get out of bed. That's what life looks like under the sun. But Solomon has one brief and shining moment in the book of Ecclesiastes where he looks at life under heaven and he says, aha, I get it. There's a season for this, there's a season for that, and God has made everything beautiful in his time. There's a purpose for everything under heaven. And God has put eternity within man's hearts. There's a great big void that money can't fill. Family can't even fill it. Children can't fill it. Pleasure can't fill it. And Solomon said, here is the sum of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is man's all. And he tells us here, unless the Lord is involved, we're building in vain. Families are worth it. They matter. And he tells us to labor for it. Now, I shared last week, labor's involved, right? There's physical capital, there's mental capital. It is a lot of work to raise a family. But Solomon adds something else here. He adds, there's a skill to all this. And the reason we should know there's a skill is, number one, if we look back at our parents, we probably didn't see a lot of skill, right? I don't know who your parents were, but I think my parents were kind of learning on the job or learning from their parents, which isn't the best way to learn sometimes, unless you had great parents. Verse 4 says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, an archer. Now, I, I don't know anything about archery. I know this. If you gave me a bow and arrow, I could not hit a bullseye. I don't know if I could even launch the thing. Solomon said there's skill here. Just like an archer hitting a bullseye, there is skill in raising a family and building a home. When Solomon writes Proverbs, he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The respect and understanding for God's place in our lives, that's where wisdom starts. The word wisdom in Hebrew is hoikma, which means skill. Do you all know there's a skill in living life? That's why we read Proverbs, right? One of the lousy things about being a Christian is when you go back and read Proverbs, you think, oh my gosh, I made all these mistakes as a non-Christian. Now I read Proverbs and I make the same mistakes. But there's a skill to life. There's a skill. And and the home is a place where we learn these skills. I was in Montana about four years ago uh, with a ministry friend. uh, And we went to his friend's house who was very benevolent and helped him build his ministry. It was a $25 million house on a lake. Now, I've seen some houses, but I mean, this house beat all, right? $25 million. I'm not going to explain what it had because it had everything, what really struck my curiosity was all the stone. And this uh, man was telling me that all the stone had to be imported from other states. There, There was no stone like this in Montana. They even had to import the workers. There were no workers in Montana skilled enough to put the stone on the facade of this house. So it takes skill to build brick and mortar a house. It takes much more skill to build a home. When Monica and I became Christians, we had our first child, we really didn't know the godly way to raise children. We went to every parenting seminar we could. We read every book we could. Why? Because we didn't want the greatest achievement of our life to be in vain. The greatest achievement of our life, our legacy, our posterity meant so much to us. Guys, this is the level that we have to raise our thinking to. This matters. This is the greatest thing we will ever do on the face of earth if God grants us that. So for the next half hour or so, I want to give you three things that every home should be. Now, I'm not going to give you a lot of how-tos, I'm going to give you a lot of heart-tos, because a lot of this is about the heart. In a couple of weeks, I'll give you some how-tos and some practical things. But if God gave me one request, this would be my quest, every Christian home would have these three things. Number one, every home should be filled with grace. Every home should be filled with grace. Why? Why? Because we say this all the time. Grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. Grace changed you and me. Hopefully you've experienced God's grace. Now I have to think 97% of us in this room were lost and then we were found. We who were dead in trespasses and sins have been made righteous by the grace of God. The whole meaning of the term born again is you once were this way and now God has made you a brand new person. Not an act of your righteousness, but all that he has done. Most of us before Christ were on the performance plan. We were doing a host of things that one day we hoped would please God and achieve something in the kingdom, maybe merit us heaven, And then we got off the performance plan and we found grace. That it is finished. What we couldn't do for ourselves, God has done for us. Now why in the world wouldn't we raise our children the same way? It's my opinion that many Christian homes, Christian schools, are still operating under a fallen condition focus. What do I mean by that? Remember back in Genesis where... Adam and Eve had sinned. God comes along and he pronounces a curse. He tells Adam now, the sweat of your brow, you'll toil. There'll still be pleasure in work, but there's going to be a lot of sweat. Eve, you know, children are going to be amazing. They're a heritage from the Lord, but there's going to be pain in your childbearing. We almost never quote this. He tells Eve, your desire will now be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. The curse brought a power struggle for the first time, to the marriage relationship. No longer would a man and woman walk side by side complimenting each other, there'd be a tremendous power struggle. The woman would wanna supersede the man, the man would put her down, he's stronger. Look through history, this is what's happened. So what we do as Christians, we come along, and we think, okay, we're gonna raise a family. And uh, what we do is we kind of still raise families under the curse. Okay? The first thing we do is we control all of us. Mom, dad, siblings. All are trying to control one another. How do we know when we're controlling someone? When we're trying to fix them. Now, who's the fixer? Who's the fixer? The Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the one that comes along and helps us grow and brings to our remembrance and the scripture and the things that we should do. But what happens in a family is everybody's trying to fix the other. The wife's trying to fix the husband. The husband's trying to fix the wife. Everybody trying to fix someone and move them to a mythical standard, and that's controlling. The next thing we have is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. The New Testament says in Ephesians 4, 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, we should bear with one another in love. Instead, when things happen within a family, we tend to be unforgiving or at least not forgiving right away. Again, another way to control its power over another. We get reactive. We're ego-driven. This is worst of all, we shame one another. How many of us were told, maybe not flat out, you're not measuring up? You're not like your brother. You're not like your father. You're not like my mother. There's something wrong with you. Subliminally, all these messages go forth. And here's what we do as Christians. We do the same thing that the world does. We do all this, and then we whip out our Bibles after dinner and have a devotion and think God's going to make everything right. Little pixie dust on everything. Put a Christian bumper sticker on this and we're going to turn out well. This is the problem with families the problem with schools. The fruit of this is members feel trapped. Members feel they're never going to measure up. There's no way out. They start to look inward and get reclusive and then we have all kinds of problems. This is generally where family life goes. Now, let's think about grace. Let's think of the alternative. The alternative is grace. This is an environment where everything is empowering. Think of Jesus' ministry. He was full of grace and truth. Think of one of his most famous encounters, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She had five husbands. She was living with someone. Jesus tells her the truth. He said the Jews worship in the right manner. The Jews worship in the temple. He didn't skirt the truth. He didn't tell her all roads lead to God. He didn't tell her living with someone was okay. But then he told her this, go and live a life free of sin. Now, we would never do that today. Uh, we would get her, you know, you know, sign up for this counselor, go to the benevolence office. I mean, we would never let this woman go, right? Go and live a life free of sin. Jesus was empowering to almost everyone he met. Now, this doesn't mean there's no rules, right? Right? Um, If you think grace means no rules, you don't understand grace. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Grace is our teacher. Here's what it teaches us. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we can live righteously, soberly in this present age. In any age, whatever age it is. We can live soberly, we can be right-minded, we can live righteously, we can do the right thing. Now, let's get away from the family for a minute. Let's talk about, let's grab a sin out of the air, let's talk about pornography. Let's talk about pornography because that's the statistics we all see, right? Men and women, uh, Christians, -Christians, non-Christians, it's on all kinds of devices. Supposedly the sin no one can beat, right? So let's look at pornography just for a minute. Grace says, for the very first time, I have control. Grace teaches me something. I can be sober-minded. And by the way, no one falls into pornography. No one falls into adultery. No one gets up in the morning and says, I think I'll commit adultery today. It doesn't happen that way. So here's what grace allows me to do. It, it, it allows me to unpack the lies of pornography. I unpack the lie that it, B means women, that it misrepresents the female, misrepresents true sexuality, it's an idol, it's fake, all film is fake, right? It helps me ask questions like this, uh, will I be a better leader, dad, friend, if I enter into this sin? Will it strengthen or weaken my relationship with my wife, with my children, with my coworkers? See? See, here's how it works. How many of you, right at their church, could run a marathon, raise your hands? How many of you can run a marathon? How many of you, if you tried real, real hard, could run a marathon? Okay. The only people that raised their hand were people that have run marathons or somebody with a male hubris. Those were the only two. Okay. <laughs> See, it's not about trying, it's about training not about trying. It's about training. You don't get on the treadmill and try, 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 try. Grace helps you to train. Grace allows you to form new habits, to renew your mind, to make no provision for the flesh. Any of this make sense? See, that's what the home should be. The home should be empowered by grace. We should be talking about issues. We should be taking these arrows out of our quiver. We protect them for a season, we sharpen them, we educate them, we talk about things biblically, we talk about things in the culture, and when they fail, we pick them up and put them back on solid ground. That's what grace means. Now again, it doesn't mean no rules. The Houston police actually wrote uh, a little pamphlet on how to raise a criminal. After 30 years of dealing with criminals, they said, if you want to raise a criminal, do these things. Number one, give your kids everything they want. Never say no. Number two, when they say bad words, laugh at them. Number three, deprive them of all spiritual training. Number four, pick up everything they leave behind. Number five, quarrel frequently in their presence. Number six, satisfy every craving and desire. Number seven, take their side against all authority, neighbors, educators. And number eight, always apologize and tell them It was your fault. God, when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, put them in a garden of grace. You can eat of all these trees. They're all yours. And then he gave them borders and boundaries that any loving parent would. Don't eat of the tree in the center. He gave them restrictions. They had rules. Now, if you're going to give rules, there have to be consequences. God said, in the day you eat it, you will surely die. Uh, How many of you have done this or seen this where a kid's acting up and you tell them, you have five seconds to change that? Four, three, two, one and a half. You know, and then (laughs) we've all seen it, right? Because we don't like to give consequences. Grace is the environment that children learn to navigate the complexities of life while they're in our quiver. I remember when Paul Tripp was here, we were doing a teenage seminar and he said something I never forgot. He said, any parent in this room have an experience where you made your children lunch? Went to all the hard work, made lunch, they walk out the door, they get on the bus, the lunch is still on the table, now they have no lunch. And they come home and you're fuming, I made you lunch, you forgot your lunch. And then Paul Tripp looked out and said, how many of you ever made your lunch and forgot it before you went to work? Almost every hand went in the air. He said, what'd you do? Went out to Chick-fil-A, went out to another restaurant, right? See, grace is giving other people what we would want for ourselves. That's grace. Grace is standing in another's shoes with the generosity that we would want to experience. Remember Jesus talked about the man who was freed of $50,000 worth of debt and went and choked somebody for 50 cents, right? Right? Sometimes we're doing that to our own children. T.D. Jakes said, Our desire that our children be flawless and live up to a prescribed image is so often motivated by our own insecurity. We fear that our identity will come under question if our children do not reflect the right image. Out of a fear, we offer our children conditional love. If you act according to the script, I reward you with my love. If you would go outside the lines and enter the wrong side of the stage or fail to generate a standing ovation, I will withhold portions of my love. And that's the fallen condition, measuring up. My son graduated high school. He was on the varsity basketball team that night. They were driving down to one of his friends at the shore. My wife comes into my room. How in the world could you say yes? How in the world could you let him go? I said, he's never failed me up until this point. When he fails, then we'll have a different agreement. One author said freedom should be given away. It shouldn't be given away. It's earned. The more self-control and responsibility they are demonstrated, the more freedom there can be. I get real concerned when I see families where the freedom factor never kicks in. There's very little, if any, freedom until all of a sudden the kid's out of the house, at college, and they're overwhelmed. I'll leave you with one scripture in this area, Ephesians 6 4. Don't provoke your children to anger. And the way you anger them is to make them perform. Now, there should be no condemnation in the room. There should only be conviction that we can let grace rule our homes. We've all failed in this area. I failed, you failed, siblings have failed one another. Uh, what we can do show the generosity that God showed us and let that be the quiver that we're raising our hours in. The second thing every home should have is purpose. Purpose. It's very important. Mary Pfeiffer wrote a book called The Shelter of Each Other, a New York Times bestseller. She's a secular author. Her conclusion about after wonderful research about the family is we have a crisis of meaning in our culture. A crisis of purpose. She said, this crisis comes from our isolation from each other and the values we learn in a culture of consumption and the fuzzy self-help message of our day. It's all about me, myself, and I. She says, we live in the USA, the United States of advertising. Your kids and my kids are bombarded by thousands of images and now on portable screens that life is all about consumption. It's all about the flesh. It's all about money. It's all about power. And then on the side, we got to tell them about Jesus and his values. It's a very difficult task. Children, Solomon said, are a heritage. In other words, they come from God. So what we need to do is instill purpose into our children by telling them one thing they'll never hear in the culture, and it's this: Genesis 1:26, "You were created in God's image, and God's likeness." Jeremiah said, "When you were in the womb, He formed you and knew you, and He knew what you were going to do, and why He put you on the earth." The job of parents is take that arrow out of the quiver and aim it somewhere. Now here's the problem: we don't really know where we're aiming. Right? One of the things we did is we would put our kids into different things, trying to see what their proclivity was. And usually at an early age, you could tell what a child's bent towards. Believe it or not, I never put any one of my kids in basketball. Okay? Every one of them came and asked me at some time, hey, Dad, I think I like to play basketball. My son played basketball, made the varsity team, never really wanted to go out and practice. I drug him out there. Uh, We played, but he really wasn't all that crazy about it. Went on a youth trip in our church to Buffalo. They got snowed in, and he was snowed in with one of the guys in our church who led worship in our youth group. And he began to teach my son a few chords. Now my son, who he had to force to go out and play basketball, would sit around for hours playing the guitar. became the passion of his life. Today, he plays, he records, he leads worship, plays on the worship team. So sometimes you point an arrow, and the arrow changes a little, and the direction changes a little, but we gotta point them somewhere. We gotta find their gifts, we gotta find their callings. We used to go to Barnes and Noble's a family night. All of us would go to a different section. Uh, today, I've got a daughter in publishing, another daughter that writes poetry. This is what it means to train up a child in the way they should go. And to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a chapter you all know. The Ten Commandments are given. And then one of the great verses in all the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you, you, every parent. Shall teach your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. A home should be a training center, it's the seminary of life. Now, one of the beautiful things is we come into this community. After 167 hours of training our children, being their prime spiritual example, we come into the family of families. And we teach them the value of the church. Why? Because the church is the only thing they'll stay in the rest of their life. School will end at a point. Almost everything will end. A career will end. Church remains the same for life. Church is the place where we meet like-minded people. People who are raising our kids like we are. People who own the same values. People who are different from us but believe the same thing. One of the great, great things I think was instilled into my children is plumbers and doctors and scientists and people of color and race who all came together saying they love Jesus Christ. It's the greatest example in the world. And so we all have a part to play in this. My children knew from the time they were born, they were not the purpose. This is a problem in our day. In past years, the children were over here. Now they're on a pedestal. And what happens is when people raise them and they go, they cave, the parents, they don't know what to do. The kids never see any value or purpose beyond them. Our kids always knew they were on our journey, that we were going somewhere, that we had a vision for life. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, train them in the way they should go. Every home needs grace. Every home needs a purpose, why do we exist? Why are we a family? And finally, and this will be the shortest one, every home needs love, every home needs love. In the craziness of this world, everybody needs to come home to a place where they're accepted for who they are. Everywhere we go as individuals, We're tracked by performance. Everywhere. Home is a place where you open the door and you're valued for who you are and the way God made you. Right now we have kids in special needs downstairs. They're part of our family at Calvary Chapel. People that work with them, don't look at them as special needs. It's the way God made them. Home is the place where you're just accepted for the way God made you. It's a place where you're loved unconditionally. I share with you, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. I never once doubted I was loved. Never once. Now, it wasn't said a whole lot. It should have been said more, and I said it more to my kids. But I never once doubted And never once didn't understand that I was loved. And it was a place that was safe for me. Arrows are best directed when they're allowed the chance to be sharpened slowly over time through the abrasions that all of us must face and to be chiseled into what God intended them to be in future years. The greatest incubation for this is really love. Now, love isn't soft and gooey. You know, we know what love is. First Corinthians 13, love is gentle, love is kind, love, love speaks the truth. You know, there's a whole subset of things that love is biblically. We know that love covers and nullifies a multitude of sins. And we know that God is love. I mean, this is important. See, parents, the source of love is God. For you to do anything in leading your family, you've got to be plugged into the source. If love comes from God, we've got to be plugged in the source. Like the old adage, you can't, on an airplane, when the oxygen mask comes, you don't put it on the child. You put it on yourself first or you're going to walk around fixing people, right? I say this all the time. The only person you can fix is yourself. And once you're right, you can walk in love, and you can walk in generosity. That house I told you about in Montana, no one lives there anymore. Parents are split. Kids live with one parent. A 25 million well-constructed, House is no longer a home. And all that they've done is in vain. Now, God is the master rebuilder. God is the master rebuilder. Wherever you are, the ship can turn around. It's never easy. There's a lot of pain. But when God's involved and we begin to build, we can build afresh. He can take ashes and make them wonderful. Wonderful. Make beauty out of them. It's the wonderful rebuilder. There was an old commercial, some of you old heads will remember. This is way before Jiffy Lube and getting your oil changed every 6,000 miles. There was a thing called a Fram oil filter. And they had a commercial. The guy would hold up that dirty oil filter and he would say, you can pay me now or... Pay me later. You can pay me now, you can pay me later. Unless the Lord builds the house, guys, making a big mistake. Unless the Lord builds this church, making a big mistake. The good news is, God's grace never ends. God's love, it's so deep. We have the greatest purpose for being on this planet. So my prayer is you're going to raise great families. Your homes are going to be wonderful. Wherever wherever you are, God can change things because grace changes everything.